This is the 32nd episode of the podcast and you still don't know the intro. Yeah, no, it's, I've, I just, you know, delete it from my memory once I move, once we move on. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget when my eyebrow goes up. The police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Zip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Speaker. They say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome to the Iron Duke podcast, your weekly catch-up of all things policy, politics, where we take you through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits, and anything that fits from around New Zealand and the globe. I'm joined by Senior Consultant Maddie Burgess-Smith. Byron, let's get straight into it. This week, obviously, a couple of massive stories. We've got the Rotorua emergency housing situation, which we're going to touch on. The other huge story of the week was just the GST blunder from the government. We're also going to talk about the lack of apology or any form of accountability from the government on what happened up in Northland. And lastly, quite an interesting story emerged this week from the warehouse and perhaps us not getting a good deal. Later on, we'll then be joined by Peter Bradley. Peter is the chief executive of St. John Hatehono. St. John, New Zealand, um, who will be talking to us about all sorts of weird and wonderful things in the ambulance sector, which is quite an interesting space within the wider health community at the moment. Byron, kick us off. Peak of the week. My peak of the week is the immediate backflip on putting GST onto KiwiSaver fees. It has been a long-standing agreement between IRD and the wider payments sector, I guess you'd call them, they're not really a kind of collective, that we won't charge GST on that because the administration cost is outrageously complicated because there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of these little tiny fees. And there are also many fees on your KiwiSavers. So every month you'll see... 25 cents or a dollar or how big your KiwiSaver is just kind of disappear into the ether, into the bank as a fee for managing your KiwiSaver. At the moment, that little fee does not have GST on it. Why the U-turn? We were expecting some of the smaller uh, fund managers to support this. Uh, None of them have been. And when David Parker introduced the, wait for it, Taxation, annual rates for 2020, 2022, 2023, platform economy and remedial matters bill number two to the House, it accidentally caught KiwiSavers. And what it would do every year is shave off about $223 million from KiwiSaver balances. Someone picks up those shavings, don't they? You do, yeah. The government picks up $223 million extra to spend on whatever the hell they want to spend it on. Embarrassing. Embarrassingly. Less than than 24 hours after revealing this to the House, he quite contritely said, well, you know, we need more money to do the things that we want to do as the government. And it's kind of like, well, hold on, don't people need the savings? Kiwis need more money to live after the age of 65. it was kind of a bizarre way of framing this, and it's like, well, you should, you this this money should be ours. It should go to us. Well, actually, no. This should go to Kiwi Savings. Should go to people who want to start their first home or buy their first home. It should go to whatever the uses of Kiwi Saver are, not to the government coffers to spend on all sorts of weird and wonderful shit. Two things about that bill for me. Firstly, the name was just unbelievably shit. Secondly. How did it get so far? How did it get all the way? It's not just like it was in an idea that David whispered to a mate at a pub. No, it was a bill coming before the House that they just hadn't even thought about the political implications of. What they completely failed to understand is just the zeitgeist in and around KiwiSaver. Kiwis are so protective of that. This is a bill that has to go through the House every year. 
So the 2022, 2023 bill, every, this, this thing just happens every year. Mm. It has to go through. But this time, the government overreached and just said, oh, we're just going to add that little bit into this bill. Yeah, look, they've lost a lot of credentials in and around the tax policy space over the last four years, and I think it's going to take quite a bit of work to really earn back Kiwi's trust when it comes to this sort of thing. Earn the taxation they take. Maybe we should just vote on where our taxes go. Wouldn't that be fun? Anyways, what's your pit of the week? My pit of the week should be every New Zealander's pit of the week, and that is the state of emergency housing, not only in Rotorua, which is what's been widely reported on this week, but across the nation. There are now 27,136 families, so households, not people, households living in emergency housing in this country. Say that number again. 27,136. Jesus. Thousand households, and and that has cost us a billion dollars up until June of this year, and it's brought to light the role of current affairs in New Zealand politics in setting the tone and setting the agenda. The opposition has tried to bring it to light, NGOs have tried to bring it to light, but what it took was you know a big Sunday current affairs special piece on it for people to really start getting up in arms, for the minister to have to start answering some questions. The state of where these people are living is just shocking. Like, no healthy home standards. You've got security companies that are basically run by gang members. People are feeling so intimidated where they're living that they're choosing to live in their cars. What it really, this the show over the weekend showed, that there are people making a profit out of other people's misery in this country. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, but it also shouldn't take a current affairs show for everyone to kind of perk up and actually start to listen and think, this just isn't good enough. Somehow it's managed to fall off the front pages it's managed to fall into the kind of ether and it has just been kind of ignored and oh we had COVID and then oh we've got Generation Motel which is going to ripple through the economy Mm. and I think uh, you know Rotorua is probably just the most it's the biggest symptom at the moment Mm. of what has been completely mismanaged public housing stock, unfortunately by subsequent governments. This yeah. isn't... Oh, this it's, is, it's this a wicked problem. You can't just say this is blue team, red team, yellow team, uh, green team. It's been kind of a subsequent disaster that's been a rolling mall for New Zealand. Mm, and I, I think I'm just kind of pissed off that it took the power of current affairs program to drive this into the news agenda. You're bloody lucky to be where you are because somewhere along the track, the government, subsequent governments, you're right, are failing generations worth of people. This is the messed up thing. The average period that someone would spend in transitional housing when this government came in was 45 days. It's now 417. And if you think the cost of living crisis is bad, these are actually the numbers that you should be voting on. That's what I'm pissed off about this week. How about you? So my pit of the week this week is the little October 2021 lockdown in Northland being caused by a bureaucratic cock-up rather than an individual misleading the government. So what I'm talking about here is that it was revealed that the trio of uh, women who went up from Auckland to Northland, they left the Auckland lockdown kind of hard border with a positive Delta case on board. And the Minister for COVID-19 at the time, Chippy, old Chris Hipkins, he said they obtained their permission to go across the border by providing misleading information. In other words, they lied, they're criminals, they are essentially defamed. He played a pretty heavy blame game. He did. And Northland went into a pretty serious 11-day lockdown and these individuals were blamed. Mm. They were blamed for falsifying information. They were blamed for misleading officials. They were blamed for breaking the law. Anyway, a whole bunch of OIAs later, it's revealed that Actually, it was MSD's cock-up. This permission should never have been granted. It was granted in error by bureaucrats. Chris Hipkins and the Prime Minister stood there at this press conference and refused to apologise. 
it's, it's a matter of record uh, at the time that uh, a clerical error was admitted at the time. We have to consider the whole context of this particular case, which was that we had COVID-19 in Northland. And what's interesting is that there's a chain of accountability here. There is a total chain of accountability. And unfortunately, the buck stops with the minister. If your officials you know, screw up, you're the guy or girl who has to say, sorry, I apologise, this is not good, I'm conducting a review, blah, blah, blah. It's just what you do. And to have Chris Hipkins, who I personally rate as one of the more competent ministers, one of the most competent ministers that New Zealand's had in a long time, to have him kind of stand up there and say, you know what? I'm not apologising for anything. It's this person's fault. It's MSD's fault. They've apologised. Not take ownership of it. I actually just think he's over it. I think like it's he's shocking. just so over this portfolio. He's so over the now cost that it is to his political brand. Oh, that doesn't fucking matter. You put it. You put. Yeah. You put an entire region, one of New Zealand's poorest regions, in lockdown. You sent children to the homes that you just talked about for eleven days. And they could not be anywhere else because they were put in lockdown because of a bureaucratic fuck-up, not because of someone breaking the law. And the minister, where the buck stops, wouldn't even apologise. I think that is a terrible way to run this country and there needs to be some accountability at the ministerial level to be able to say, you know what, I apologise, I screwed up, my mistake. It's not that hard. And it's after the fact as well. Someone can come in and cost it out. Yeah. Oh. oh. And then they can, they can pay everyone... Listeners, one day, one day in the probably distant future, there will be a review. Anyway, let's bring it back up again. What's your peak of the week, Madison? I'm always on the hunt for a bargain, and many listeners will be familiar with a website called One Day. Now, this is a pretty niche peak of the week. They have been caught out for what is misleading and somewhat actually fraudulent behaviour. The premise of the website is as follows. Someone came up with this idea. Rather than sell thousands of items, I'm just going to sell one item thousands of times every day. And that's what that's what this website does. It comes up with the sale of an item and it tells you there are only so many and it tells you you've only got 24 hours and you need to jump in. At its peak, that website was earning $2 million a week. So who were they brought out by? None uh, other. Uh, easy buy. Than the, than the, uh, the red leader of New Zealand. Um, 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 the warehouse. The warehouse. Yes! That was the origin story. Love an origin story. That was the origin story. They have been caught out. Their sales don't last one day anymore. Oh, so so they can't be called one day. They've been hit with an $840,000 fine for misleading consumers. There's another component there as well, which is, you know, they have, they have you have money, so I, I guess you're not really on these sites. But we work at the same place. Yeah, but do we? <laughs> do, what do you do after us? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, mm. <laughs> I'm moonlight. <laughs> They have these these trackers where um, as the orders come in, the bar goes down and the bar shows how many's left. Turns out that wasn't even real. That they just made it up. They just made it up. Oh. That wasn't tied to orders. That Jesus. was just it was just a, like a countdown. It was just a clock. It just ticked down as the hours went past. So answer me this, and um, this is a burning question that's been texted into me by some of the listeners today. Um, if one day didn't have that little decreasing ticker, would you have so much stuff, Maddie? I actually only shopped to see Terence the Courier. I thought everyone knew that. What a guy. What a guy. What a guy. What I was saying is no one seems to want to apologise anymore. Rather mm. than say, sorry for misleading you, they said, well, there was no way of us confirming that it was one day only. It doesn't say it's one day only. The name of the website is One Day Sale. 
Like, come on, mis- misleading advertising. It's kind of, it's pond scum shit. Yeah, it is. And I'm really happy with a lot of the work that the Commerce Commission's currently doing yeah. in and around consumer yeah, affairs. Fairness, You've got right? some really cool stuff happening in the afterpay space. You've oh. got cool stuff happening in and around advertising to kids. Yeah. There's there's a lot going on at the moment just to make it a safer place for, for people to be shopping because there are a lot of vulnerable people. That's right. Myself included. If, who just buy shit willy-nilly. Yep. What we're trying to get to here is, you know, e-commerce, it isn't all easy and breezy all the time, is it, Maddie? It's actually evil. That the E in e-commerce is for evil, okay? It's going to suck you in. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of things that aren't evil in the slightest, ambulances, St. John, let's go. We are joined in studio today by Peter Bradley, the Chief Executive of Hatehono St. John. Peter, welcome. Thanks so much for giving us your time this morning. No, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to you. Now, Peter, you have been in ambulance for well for, for as long as I've probably been around. What led you into what is a, a really exciting and, and challenging sort of a role? Thanks, Maddie. Yes, well, I started my career as a um, working on ambulances in Auckland and um, was a paramedic for many, many years and then uh, decided to get into management. And so I got into an operational management role in, uh, in Hatehone St. John uh, in Auckland and remained in that role for a number of years and then decided that um, it was about time that I did some management training. So I, re- I resigned and went to um, Otago University and did a, a full-time MBA and then had intended to go back to Auckland to do some sort of health role. But um I uh, got approached about going across to, to work in England uh, in London Ambulance Service. So um went across for an interview and um, surprise, surprise to, my, to, to myself, I got the job as Director of Operations for London Ambulance Service uh, and then eventually became the Chief Executive of London Ambulance Service and um, for 12 years in that role, and then, which is a big job, is the busiest ambulance service in the world. Wow. Um, and then after the, after the London Olympics, uh, sorry, just prior to the London Olympics, I was approached about the other job in um, Hatehone St. John in New Zealand came up as the chief executive. Um, I hadn't intended to return to New Zealand, in fact, but um, this job seemed like too good an opportunity to, to miss. So I flew across for an interview and, um, and got the job. And so after the Olympics, I stayed to the, after the Olympics because uh, that was big for the service to deal with and then came across to uh, to work uh, work here. Uh, so I've been here in this role as chief executive of Hatehone St. John for 10 years, uh, almost 10 years to the day. And you are a huge organisation, New Zealand's most trusted brand. You're yep. serving 96% of all New Zealanders. Sure. Tell us a bit more about some of the challenges that are, are currently facing the ambulance sector. Yeah, I think um, absolutely. You know, we're um, so we, we respond to around um, we receive about 600,000 111 calls a year, uh, and then respond to around half a million. Um, patients across across the country and uh, obviously like the rest of the health sector we're seeing increasing demand on our services um, so that that's year on year demand increases and of course during COVID we've seen a sickness of our people uh, huge demand mm-hmm. and delays at ED so combinate and then vacancies um, people people looking for other opportunities for other roles in the health uh, Paramedics are now registered, a registered workforce, so now they can apply for roles in other parts of the health sector, which is great, gives them some career opportunities. But what that does mean, it does mean that we see people moving out of ambulance services to do other, to, to take up other opportunities and challenges. So I think um, all in all, um, vacancies, high workload, um, COVID sickness and, and delays in, in ED uh, uh, did see the service under intense pressure for um, 
during the Delta outbreak and then back now through the Omicron outbreak. But I'm pleased to say that um, our team's done an, an outstanding job and we're now coming out of the other side. Demand's dropping back. It never happens in the right order. So demand's no. dropping back, sickness has dropped back, um, and we're, we're on a massive recruitment campaign. So we're, you know, we're looking to recruit up, up to about 500 ambulance staff over the next couple of years. Wow. Um, and and just, that's just for that's across New Zealand? Across New Zealand, yeah, all parts of New Zealand, yeah. So, um, and the government's been, uh, we're very pleased to see that um, having had funding challenges for many, many years, and uh, um, we're really pleased to see that the government has invested in our service and give us to give us some sustainability. So, uh, hence the ability to recruit so many new people. So, how big is your is your workforce right now? Split between paid staff and volunteers. So, so if you could explain the difference as well, that'd be super helpful. Sh- sure. So, so of course, um, we're talking. So, there's three parts to St John. Quickly, there's um, the ambulance service, which we just talked about. Then we have our charitable service. Uh, uh, which is doing community work, community help. And then we've got our commercial support, um, which does things like first aid training and has medical alarms. But overall, in our organisation, we have around uh, 11,000, 12,000 people. Um, so we've got around 3,500 paid staff yep. uh, and then around uh, 8,000 uh, volunteers. And in wow. the ambulance service in particular, we have 2,000 paid ambulance staff uh, and then around 3,500 volunteers. So how does it work? So when I ring one 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 and I speak to someone because yeah. I've seen a, I've seen someone in a situation where they need an ambulance, what's the process to get St John to turn up and help someone? Sure. So we've got three three communication centres. So three one 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 call and dispatch centres across the country: one in Christchurch, one in Auckland, and then one in Wellington. So Wellington Free and St John work closely together. Yep. Uh, we've got the same <coughs> excuse me same dispatch arrangements, same call answering arrangements. And in fact, if you dial one one one, you could be uh, the call could be answered at any one of those three centres. So we've got the best use of that resource whoever's the next available call taker so basically um, we use an internationally recognized prioritization system that all our 111 call takers use uh, and it takes takes the uh, caller through a uh, through a, a predetermined set of questions to to ascertain the level of uh, acuity uh, yeah. of the call so it, it particularly focuses in the early part of the call on whether the person is, is as a pulse yeah. uh, whether they're breathing so uh, <laughs> if, if that's the, if if it transpires that the person uh, isn't breathing or doesn't have a pulse then we can get the ambulance on the way and uh, send the call to the dispatcher uh, while the rest of the questions are asked to, to, to avoid any delays so go through a series of questions the call is then categorized through this algorithm uh, as either purple red orange green or gray um, and depending on the colour it's categorised as depends on um, how how quickly we will, we will respond and wow. how we'll get prioritised. So purple calls are our cardiac arrests, so they're the people who are you know require resuscitation. Very small number of calls, probably around eight percent of our calls are cardiac arrests. Mm-hmm. Um, but in those cases, uh, we we put as many resources as we can as quickly as we can uh, uh, to be sent to the uh, to the patient, and including uh, f- fire service, uh, fire service res- uh, fens as it's called. Uh, response by purple calls and often get there before we do uh, particularly in rural areas and they're able to provide a fantastic CPR and use a, use a defibrillator. You were talking a lot about how you've got just increased demand more broadly is that just part of New Zealand's wider ageing population? I know one of your biggest calls is, is slips and falls and as you prepare for the organisation going into the future the addition of services like health shuttles more people will be requiring in home care yep. what does that look like for you? That's, that's a good question. I, I think um, so. I think all parts of the health service are seeing so on, on average we'd normally see a three to four percent increase in calls each year so and that's that's the same in australia and the uk so it's an international sort of trend um and i think um covid saw that increase of eight or nine percent but interestingly a lot of those people were the worried well so people didn't require 
hospitalisation, but did require some form of face-to-face assessment to see whether they were okay. Worried um, well. well. That's, I love that's that. very polite. Oh, very polite, yeah. Frequent flyers. <laughs> frequent, yeah. Frequent flyers. Uh, well, not quite frequent flyers, but some of that, a bit of that. Um, so I think in that case, um, so we're seeing that increase in workload. But as I said before, by and large, the people um, people call us for reassurance and for and for and for an assessment. And don't forget, caller is, is often not the patient. Yeah, mm. good point. Uh, so so people ring on their behalf because they're worried about them. So I think the face to face assessment does bring a lot of reassurance to people. But equally, we're increasingly looking at how we can provide good uh, online telephone support mm. and do a, do a full assessment of patients. And that's we've been working really well over the past five to six years so uh, people will be surprised to know that not everyone who gets an ambulance goes to hospital so on average only 60% of the people we um, we attend end up going to hospital and why is that because two reasons one because we've done an assessment and found out the person doesn't require hospitalization or two we've been able to refer them to other parts of the health system mm-hmm. see a GP uh, you know go to go to the pharmacy so um, I think our paramedics the, the training and, and education of our paramedics is such now uh, increasing that they are able to provide uh, you know very good on-scene assessments and diagnostics uh, and and then make good ref- uh, good referrals so I think whilst we're seeing a, a big increase in 111 calls the actual number of patients transported to hospital is probably still at the 2015 level that's saving hundreds and hundreds of hospital bed days each yeah. year so the the value to the health system is quite significant it's i think we had an independent review valued that at around 50 million a year most of the people that we transport end up being in hospital for four days and, and often it's innovation isn't it yeah it is yeah and and use of virtual telehealth uh, so more and more of that uh, over the but, but some people just do require face-to-face is no getting away from that so thinking about the the system st john is a registered charity yes so when does the government funding kind of come into the system and when does the charity side of the funding come yeah. into the system? How does that balance work? Yeah, I mean, we, obviously the, um, the ambulance service aspect of what we do is a charity, yep. um, but increasingly less reliant on charitable donations to run the service, and that's absolutely appropriate. Um, so so we were um, 70% funded about six, seven years ago. And just a quick reminder, so we've got a contractor on the emergency ambulance service with ACC and Ministry of Health. They pay half each, and they were paying 70% of the cost to run the service, operational costs. Uh, we've been uh, lobbying for some time that that wasn't enough to give us sustainability. So pleased to say over the past three or four years, in particular this last year, that funding has now increased to nearly 90%. Cool. So we're, so that we've only got the gap's only around 10%, and that 10% is made up of um, charitable donations, but also a patient part charge. So if you call an ambulance for a medical emergency, not an accident, a medical emergency, which is around 65% of the calls, then you will get a request to pay $98 to, towards the cost of the ambulance, which costs $750. 98 yeah. That, That's it? That's it. Yeah, what? so you go to see your GP, it's $45. You, yeah. go see a, you, get, you get two paramedics in an ambulance with all the kit, uh, take you to hospital, $98. So. And, and your neighbours will probably yeah. pop over, check wow. on you as well. Yeah, so it's cheapest trips really, isn't it? Yeah, so, it is. That's yeah. But that's the part charge, and that's, the, that's what we do. So I think we're, we're really pleased that the contract we signed only eight, nine weeks ago gives us some degree of sustainability. And having returned to New Zealand, one thing that did uh, amaze me and, uh, is, is the generosity of New Zealanders. Um, you know, we've had 50 ambulances donated in the past year. Physical uh, ambulance. Yes, $285,000 each, 50, 50 donated. And we are most, the most trusted charity and second most trusted brand. People just love St. John, love what we do, love the organ, love our ethos, love our, love our care and treatment, and it's brilliant. And what Kiwis need to understand is we probably don't know quite how lucky we are. How do you compare globally with that $98 mark? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly uh, in the US, the average is $1,000 in the US, and it's uh, 700 on average, $700 in Australia. UK is different because it's part of the National Health System, so it's free, National Health Service. Um, but yeah, I mean, compare ourselves with uh, over the Tasman there, $700 on average for an ambulance to, to be called out for you. So people do need medical insurance. Wow. So yeah, so we, now we've got a, we, we do a good job. We've got a great organisation, great volunteers, great paid staff, and uh, and fantastic public support. And long long may that continue. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. That was a hugely insightful conversation into something that we all see whiz past, but we never really think about too much of what happens in and behind the scenes. As is tradition on the Iron Duke podcast, we finish with a hot or not. We're going to take you through some questions from the last seven days. If you like them, they're hot. If you don't, they're not. (laughs) Byron, kick us off. So my first hot or not, low turnout at local government elections. Not. Ikea eyeing up New Zealand. Hot. And last one, electric ambulances. Hot. Brilliant. Do you have any? No. <laughs> Not, <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Hello Not yet. donors, if you want to give an EV ambulance <laughs> yes. to St John, we'll come find you. Thank you. Emergency housing in Rotorua. Not. GST on your KiwiSaver. Not. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. And, and thank you. For carrying Brilliant. on our good work together. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye. Bye. We'd like to thank our podcast editor, Mr. Kai Selby, for buzzing out the swear words and us fighting with each other. As always, listeners, we'll see see you next week. week.